Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Aristotelian Society. This is the last meeting of the year, um, and um, so my last meeting as president. Uh, it's been a pleasure to serve the Aristotelian Society this year as president. Um, but before we introduce tonight's speaker, I'd just like to thank someone else. We, um, the Aristotelian Society doesn't run by itself, but like a Rolls-Royce, it runs so smoothly that you wouldn't think there was an engine inside it. The engine is actually run by, um, most, mostly I have to say, by, by Hannah Carnegie Arthbuthnot, who's here, and this is her last um, uh, meeting of the society as, um, as the um, administrative secretary or whatever your position actually is, Hannah, but the person who runs the whole thing, let's face it. <laughs> And uh, Hannah's going off to a postdoc at Stanford, which is fantastic news. So she can't be with us anymore. But so I'd like you to ask, um, to join me. I'd like you to join me in asking uh, Hannah to, thanking her for everything she's done. Thank you. Uh, and tonight's speaker, we're very happy to have Shamit Dasgupta, who was um, actually a student here um, some, some years ago, did the, M the MA um, uh, in London before going off uh, to NYU and then to Princeton, and he's now at Berkeley, where, and he's going to talk to us tonight about normative non-naturalism and the problem of authority. Shamit, welcome. Don't take my notes away. Is that your notes? Come on. <laughs> they might be better than the handout. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah, I'd like to start just by um, saying how grateful I am to be able to uh, come here and talk here. I, yes, it was 2001, I think, that I started my education in philosophy here uh, in London um, when I enrolled in the MA degree at uh, King's College. Uh, and so I spent all my time coming to events like this at Senate House and um, hearing all the interesting speakers that were coming through. I think in retrospect, when I look back on it, I understood almost nothing that was going on. It was so new to it, and it was all this sort of blur of of, of words. Um, but somehow, by some process of osmosis, it sort of seeped into me and I, I caught the bug, as it were, and discovered the subject uh, that I now love. So it's just to say that I benefited so much from the Aristotelian Society and other events here at Senate House. So it's a real pleasure to be back um, uh, today. So yeah, I want to talk about normative non-naturalism, um, which is the view that at least some normative properties are uh, sui generis in the sense that they're not identical to any natural properties, uh, nor are they explicable or reducible uh, in any other terms. Um, and by a normative property, I'm using the term rather broadly to include um, things like reasons, rationality, uh, oughts and shoulds, uh, rights and wrongs, goods and bads, all those kinds of phenomena, including under the umbrella of normativity. And so if we read famously G.E. Moore as proposing that goodness is this sui generis, irreducible, non-natural property, then he would count as a normative non-naturalist in the sense uh, that I have in mind. Um, Tim Scanlon more recently has also proposed that the, um, well, that the relation of being a reason for uh, is sui generis in this sense. And so he counts as a normative non-naturalist in this sense, uh, too. Um, so against this view, it's been argued that these sui generis properties um, 
if there are such things, would sort of have no normative authority over us. And the thought is sort of like that when deciding what to do or how to live or who to be, um, one might ask oneself why the distribution of such a sui generis property would be at all relevant uh, to one's decision making. Um, I mean, grant that I should care about whether my actions cause people pain, uh, whether they distribute goods fairly, and so on. You know, why also worry about whether my actions are somehow um, governed by or organized around this further sui generis um, property? So uh, Noel Smith, I think, expressed this idea in a famous passage uh, really, really nicely. Uh, when he was saying that, you know, according to this non-naturalist view, normative facts are, as it were, these extra facts out there in the world there to be discovered. And uh, as he, this is now a quote, learning about values or duties then might well be as exciting as learning about spiral nebulae or water sprouts, uh, but what if I am not interested? Uh, why should I do anything about these newly revealed objects? Some things I have now learnt are right and others wrong, uh, but why should I do what is right and eschew what is wrong? Uh, and I think Christine Korsgaard uh, articulates uh, a very uh, similar idea where she's um, discussing now the, a kind of normative non-naturalism on which the relation of being a reason for uh, action is, is the sui generis uh, uh, relation out there. And she says in, in this paper, The Normativity of Practical Reasoning, that the account invites the question of why it's rational to conform to these sui generis reasons. Uh, so this is one of the main three, um, three main objections to normative uh, non-naturalism. There's sort of the other two being a kind of metaphysical objection to the effect that sui generis properties of this kind are sort of spooky in some way. Uh, there's also an epistemic objection to the effects that you know, how could we discover um, truths about them? Um, but, so the one I'm, the objection I'm focusing on is this problem of normative authority. Like, how could these sui generis properties um, uh, exert any normative th authority over us? Uh, but it seems to me that it can be articulated in two rather uh, different uh, ways. Um, most commonly, I think, you see it uh, construed in what I call, on the handout, an internal way. Um, and on this way of construing the idea, it focuses on um, phenomena surrounding normative judgment and motivation. So the first premise, as I've, I've put out on the handout um, there, is that normative judgments bear a kind of necessary connection to uh, motivations. So the rough idea is that an agent who makes a normative judgment to the effect that something's good or that it would be rational to behave in some way, someone who makes a judgment like that is necessarily motivated uh, or moved um, to behave in a certain way. And of course, the details of that necessary connection can be fleshed out in many different ways. And there's a large uh, literature um, uh, dissecting the different versions of that kind of principle. But that's the main uh, first premise of the internal construal. And then the idea just is that beliefs about a sui generis property, such as that which is uh, posited by the normative non-naturalist, wouldn't bear that necessary connection to motivation. Hence, normative beliefs aren't beliefs about the normative pro uh, the sui generis property. Um, that's the, the way in which, at least as 
as far as I can see in the literature, you tend to find this um, problem of norm normative authority uh, developed. But it seems to me that there's also a very different way of hearing the problem of normative authority, uh, which I think is most um, explicitly brought out in the quote by Noel Smith, which is, has nothing really to do with normative judgment, sort of internal mental states of normative judgment or motivation at all, and has everything to do with just asking the question of why a sui generis property out there in the world should organize our actions. The objection being that such a property would be, as it were, sort of normatively inert. Um, and so what I want to do in this, this talk is try and develop this external construal of the um, problem of normative authority. Um, as I said, most of the work on this topic, I think, um, has uh, focused on the internal construal. So, for example, in a recent paper by Jamie Dreyer, he um, tries to construct the normative problem for non-naturalism in this sort of best light. But what he does is he focuses all the attention on, on trying to formulate this necessary connection between normative judgment and motivation uh, in as careful a way as he can to show that it raises a real problem for uh, non-naturalists. And indeed, when you look at responses by non-naturalists such as uh, Derek Parfitt and Tim Scanlon and, and David Enoch, uh, they all focus their energies on trying to show that this necessary connection between normative judgment and motivation is weak enough that they can, in fact, account for it. And that's, the, that's the main focus of their uh, defense. And whenever the external construal of the objection gets any mention, it seems to be sort of just passed over in a couple of quick sentences as being based on a kind of elementary confusion. Um, and so my aim is to try and show that it's not based on an elementary confusion at all, and that even if the non-naturalists are right that they can account for the internal necessary connection between normative judgment and motivation, there remains a very serious problem for their view that's brought out by this external construal of the problem that I'll try to develop. Uh, so that's, that's the aim. So I'm going to start by just, uh, in section two on the handout, just by kind of giving you um, a kind of rough first pass of the argument to give you an idea of the sort of general shape of, of the argument. And then on the second page of the, uh, of the handout, we'll start getting into more of the details. So to articulate, I think, the basic idea, it's very useful to work with a toy normative theory. Um, by a normative theory, I mean a theory of the explanatory connections between uh, different normative phenomena. So within the normative domain, what explains what? Uh, and the toy theory I'm going to work with, just for the sake of argument, is a kind of goodness-first theory. So it has two parts. Part A on the handout is... Um, that the good explains the should, as it were. So that one should do an action A uh, when and because um, that action promotes the most good. Okay. For short, I'm just going to say goodness should be promoted. Um, and part B of this uh, normative theory, this toy normative theory, is that goodness is normatively fundamental. That is to say that if something's good, if pleasure's good, that's not explained in terms of anything deeper fundamentally, uh, uh, normatively speaking. Right? So it's not the case that something's good by virtue of uh, it being rational to desire it or by virtue of um, you know, one's having a reason to promote it or anything. If, if, if something's good, that's normatively speaking at the base level. Okay, so um, that's the 
uh, normative theory I'm going to work. I don't really believe that this theory is true or anything. It's just going to be very helpful to have a an example of a toy normative theory on the table as we work through the external objection, uh, the external construal um, of this objection. Okay, so now um, we know, according to this uh, normative theory, that if some x is good, there's no uh, normative explanation of why that's so. Um, but what is the status of this claim? Um, these open many questions about what its status could be, and here we find the familiar positions uh, in metaethics. So you might have a naturalist view of goodness, where if something's good, that's in virtue of its various natural properties it has. Uh, you might advance a kind of relativist thesis on which the sentence X is good is true in someone's mouth if, if their system or the system of their culture implies uh, that X is good. You might advance some sort of non-cognitive uh, uh, proposals about claims of the form X is good. All those are sort of uh, our options there. And non-naturalism then will be another option, another theory about the, the status of the claim that X is good. And um, the non-naturalism that I'm going to be, then be interested in is the idea that goodness then is the sui generis normative uh, property. So that if X is good, that's a non-natural property of it. And there's no explanation. There's no further sort of fact in virtue of which X is good. That's just rock bottom. Of course, this is just one non-naturalist position amongst many. Tim Scanlon has a different non-naturalist view on which being a reason for is the basic normative property. And that is what explains other normative um, phenomena. But that's because he's working in the context of a different normative theory. Um, so for our purposes, I'm just going to work in the context of this goodness first uh, normative theory. OK, so the non-naturalism we're interested in is that goodness is the sui generis property. This, implies, this is really constructed out of two main claims that it's very important to separate. Uh, one is a straightforward ontological, straight metaphysical claim uh, to the effect that there exists a sui, sui generis property, uh, P. Um, and the second is an identification claim that this sui generis property, P, is in fact the property of goodness. Okay. And then the external objection or the, the external construal um, of this normative problem is, is relatively straightforward to, to state. It grants the ontological claim for the sake of argument. So you say to the non-naturalist, have this sui generis property P out there. I'll grant you that it's there. But the question is why on earth it should be promoted. Right? What is it about this property P in virtue of which we should promote things with it as opposed to things with some other property, property of redness or something? Um, and the objection is going to be, which I'll develop later, that there's no answer to that. There's just no, nothing in virtue of which we should promote uh, P. Hence, P, if there is such a property, uh, isn't the property of goodness. Now, you see, right when I say it like that, you might think that the objection is just, um, or the question that I'm asking here, uh, is simply confused. Because uh, you might say, look, though the non-naturalist might say, look, my view is that P is the property goodness. Right? And it's obvious that goodness should be promoted. Hence, it's obvious that P should be promoted. What's the question? There's no real question here, um, the non-naturalist might say. And I think that really misses the point of the external construal. And to paraphrase a wonderful passage of David Lewis's uh, when he was talking about um, a different topic of chance, um, I want to say, look, be my guest, posit all the primitive sui generis whatnots you like, but play fair 
in naming your whatnots. Don't call any alleged feature of reality goodness until you've already shown that you have something we should promote. So this requirement that we play fair is going to be is very crucial to the external um, uh, construal of the argument. And so I want to just dwell on it a little with a couple of analogies. So, um, so let's think about the case of water. Here's a toy theory of water. Water is a clear liquid. Okay, good. Now that puts a constraint on what a theory of what water is could be. So if I want to identify water with some chemical substrate, it had better be the case that that chemical substrate has the properties that produce clear, liquid, clear liquidity. So if someone comes along and says, oh, you know, I think water is the chemical HG, mercury. Then we can object. We can say, look, look at the properties of the chemical HG, and you'll see that it doesn't produce uh, clear liquidity. It actually produces an opaque, silvery uh, kind of liquid. Right? Hence, water can't be HG. I mean, I think it would be a scientific travesty to respond, well, on my theory, water just is HG. Right? Hence, since water is clear, it follows that HG must be clear. I mean, clearly, that wouldn't be the right uh, way to proceed uh, in chemical theorizing. P posit all the chemical substructures you like, but play fair in naming them. Don't call one of them water until you've shown that it has the properties uh, that explain the phenomena that we started with. Another analogy. Um, uh, suppose Mr. Plum is found killed in a library want to know who's done it. And given the footprints that we see nearby, we know that the killer has big feet. Okay. So now we have a constraint on a theory of who the killer is. Whoever the killer is, it must be the case that they have big feet. And so now Jones is in the dock, and the prosecution is asked to show that Jones has big feet. I mean, it, it would be legal nonsense for them to say, well, look, our proposal is that Jones is the killer. And so since the killer must have big feet, it follows that Jones has big feet. You know, case closed. That would never pass muster with any sensible judge. And so we must play fair in naming our killer. So this requirement that we play fair, I think, is not anything new to metaethics. I think it's been implicit in a lot of the sort of famous objections to the divine command theory of ethics. So some, suppose you have a divine command theorist who says um, that goodness is whatever God commands us to promote. Okay. Now, there's this famous objection that even if there were a supernatural agent um, up there issuing commands, it would be sort of utterly mysterious why I should obey its commands um, rather than the commands of my children or my department chair. I mean, they're all giving me commands on a daily basis. What, by what rationale are the commands of this one agent uh, any more special than the commands of the rest? Um, this objection, you see, is using a toy normative theory that goodness is something that should be promoted. And it's asking whether the thing that's being proposed as goodness, namely what God commands, is something we should promote. I think it would be not playing fair for the divine command theorist to respond, well, my theory just is that goodness is whatever God commands us to promote. So since it's, we all agree that goodness should be promoted, it follows that we should promote what com God commands us to do. Uh, that, I think, is implicit in a lot of the um, so famous objections to the divine command theory. Um, and I think what, what it's showing is, is in that case, it, it's clearly we, we must make sure that our opponents are playing fair. 
So I've been focusing on the goodness first style of non-naturalism, but you can kind of see how the same dialectic, the same kind of question can be asked on other uh, versions of non-naturalism. So if you consider uh, Scanlon's uh, theory, he starts off with a, to a toy not, well maybe it's not polite to call it a toy normative theory. <laughs> he starts off with a normative theory, um, the reasons first normative theory. And so it, in particular, one part of this theory says that rationality can be explained in terms of reasons. So to be rash, someone's rational in virtue of responding to reasons. And then he thinks that the property of being a reason for is his sui generis uh, whatnot. Okay, well, his normative theory puts this constraint on a theory of what the property of being a reason is, right? So whatever the property of being a reason is, it had better be rational to respond to it, okay? And so if Scanlon says that being a reason is some sui generis property, R, we can ask whether it's rational to respond to it. You know, what is it about R in virtue of which rationality consists in organizing yourself around it rather than around any of the other myriad properties out there? And in response, I think he can't say, well, R just is on my theory the property of being a reason for. Hence, since rationality, we all agree, is a res being responsive to reasons, that's why we should uh, respond, it's rational to respond to R. That's not playing fair. He's got to first show that his sui generis whatnot is what it's rational to respond to, and only then does he earn the right to call it uh, a reason. So I've been harping on about this, but the reason, uh, been, the, the reason is that I, I feel that non-naturalists have sort of systematically ignored this requirement uh, that they play fair. Um, and I think that's what leads them to accuse the ex this external construal of the um, normative, uh, the problem of normative authority as being um, confused. Uh, so I just want to give you a couple of examples here. Um, recall Korsgaard's uh, uh, question that she asked of Scanlon. She said, look, on your account, it just invites the question of why it's rational to conform to these reasons. Uh, and then at the top of page two at the handout, I've got Parfit's response to this uh, question. Parfit says, um, look, if non-naturalists were asked why it's rational to respond to reasons, they could answer, that is what being rational is. But look, our question wasn't what, or the question, uh, the question I want to ask in my construal of the objection, wasn't why it's rational to respond to reasons. The question is why it's rational to respond to this sui generis what not are. Okay. So if Parvit thinks he's answered our question, he must be conflating the two questions. And the two questions are indeed the same if you assume that R is the sui generis, the sui generis what not are is the property of being a reason for. But assuming that is not playing fair, as we've just been, as we've just been seeing. So I think he, by not playing fair, Parfit just sort of dismisses this, uh, this question as being trivial when I think it's far uh, from it. David Enoch is, is another example, I think, of someone um, who, who does this. He says, um, this is a quote from his book, Taking Morality Seriously. Uh, he says, it's one thing to insist that normative truths should be relevant to what we should do or what we have normative reason to do or some such. Um, but non-naturalism has no problem with this. Of course the normative truths bear on what we have normative reason to do. After all, many of them just are truths about what we have reason to do. I think this is not playing fair. And imagine he had said, of course HG is clear. After all, HG just is water. And water is clear. Right? This, 
clearly would not, not pass muster. If he wants to assume that water is clear, that's fine. But then he must first show that HG is clear before assuming that HG is water. And so similarly, I think if he wants to assume that normative truths bear on what we have normative reason to do, that's fine. That strikes me as a perfectly reasonable normative theory. Uh, but then what he's got to first do is show that his non-natural whatnots bear on what we have reason to do be before proposing that those whatnots deserve the title uh, of a normative truth. All right, so that's all sort of by, by way of sort of stage setting. I, I haven't actually given the external construal of this argument. I've just tried to sort of set the stage by, by saying what's, what counts as playing fair when discussing it. So let's now just turn to setting it out explicitly and then giving some of its premises uh, a little bit of, um, of defence. Um, so actually, I, think I want to use a, the a, a objection to the divine command theory as something of a model, because I think the two objections run in parallel. And we can, um, it's useful to keep them both in mind as we, as we go through them. So, so let's look at the argument against the divine command theory that I mentioned um, earlier. We start, as, as premise one, with just the toy normative theory that everyone accepts. So this is, this is going to be a non-negotiable um, premise. That, as I'm setting it up here, it's the premise that goodness should be promoted. Of course, if the divine command theorist accepts a different kind of normative theory, oh, fine, I'll just set up premise one as being part, some part of that normative theory instead. So I'll just we'll tailor this to the particular non-naturalist or divine command theorist um, under discussion. Um, good, and then that gives a uh, puts a constraint on what goodness can be could be whatever it is. It must be something that should be promoted, and so the objection then is that God's commands are not uh, something that should be promoted. Uh, why not? Well, this is given in premises two and three. The idea in premise two is that if they were something that should be promoted, there must be some explanation of why that's so. What makes God's commands special over and above my children's commands? Um, and premise three just saying that there is no such explanation. Um, so if premise two and three are correct, that, that implies that God's commands aren't something that should be promoted, and so by premise one, the theory is false. Um, and so against the non-naturalism, we have the same kind of structure. We start out with the normative theory um, that whatever non-naturalist we're talking to accepts. In this case, we're assuming uh, it's the theory that goodness should be promoted. Um, and then with premises two and three, we try to show um, that the sui generis property P that's being posited isn't something that should be promoted. Why not? Well, because if it were, there must be some explanation of why that's so, something that makes P special um, over and above any of the other myriad properties out there that could be promoted instead. Um, and premise three saying that there is no uh, such explanation. I haven't given any defense of premise three yet. So, you know, you may be thinking of all sorts of explanations. You can get, that's fine and good. But this is just the structure of how uh, the, argument, um, uh, the argument goes. Um, OK. So now let's uh, discuss uh, and say something about each of the premises in turn. So as I said, premise one is, is non-negotiable. We'll tailor it to the non-naturalist in question. Um, so the real action is in both premises two and three. So premise two says that if something should be promoted, um, it's got to be some explanation of, or, or, sorry, if the, if the sui generis property P should be promoted, then there must be some explanation uh, of why that uh, should be so. Let me just clarify a couple of things of what's being demanded here. 
First, the demand is for an explanation, not a justification. So in the divine command theory, for example, what's being asked at premise two is not for a reason to believe that we should do as God commands. What's being asked is for an explanation of why God's commands um, are special. Okay. Uh, and moreover, it's not, what's being demanded is not a, um, what sometimes might be called a motivating reason uh, to do as God's commands. So it's not being, uh, the demand is not for some kind of fact that if known by an agent would move them or convince them to do as God commands. Um, if that's how premise two was read, then it would all sort of collapse into the internal construal of the problem of normative authority. Okay. So the demand in premise two, we've got to be clear, is just, it, as it were, it's asking for an explanation from the third personal point of view. Okay. Just which, uh, for some fact that might not be available to any practical reasoners, just some fact that would explain why, um, why P is special. So if you, deny, if you deny premise two, for example, in the case of the uh, divine command theory, then you're, you're not just saying that there's a supernatural command giving whatnot out there. You're saying further that it's a brute, inexplicable fact that we should do what it says and not what your children says or your parents says or your department chair says. Okay. I don't know of any way to refute this view, but what all I want to emphasize is how extreme and implausible it is. I mean... To, just one thought experiment to, to, to get you on the side is to imagine that there are many supernatural whatnots. I mean, if they're, metaphysically speaking, if there was one, you know, why not many? Okay? And they're all issuing in their different commands. Okay? If you reject premise two of the, of the argument against the divine command theory, um, then what you're saying is that we should all be obeying the commands of one of these whatnots, right? even though there's nothing about it that makes it special. That, that just strikes me as sort of Fanaticism, really, to be honest. Likewise with the non-naturalists. So if you, do, if you reject premise two, then you're not just saying that it's a brute fact that, say, pleasure has this primitive property P. I mean, that was part of non-naturalism at the beginning of the day, that if something has this primitive property P, then that's a brute fact about it. If you're denying two, you're going further than that and saying that it's a brute and inexplicable fact um, that this property, uniquely, is the one that should be promoted. And again, I have no way of refuting this view, but we, I just want to emphasize uh, how extreme and implausible it is. I mean, there's just, just start thinking about the multitude of properties. There's property being red, being green. If there's a sui generis whatnot P, then presumably there may well be sui generis whatnots Q and R and S and so on and so forth. I mean. The idea that all of us should be conforming our behavior around one of them, even though there's nothing special about it, just strikes me as um, um, a very, very hard bullet to bite. So that's all that I wanted to, um, that's as much as a defense of premise two I'm going to give. I've got no definitive argument uh, for it. But, the, but what, I've, what I'm trying to do is expose it for the extreme view that it is, because I think that um, that's half of the challenge of, the, of running the external construal of this problem of normative authority, is just to expose how extreme it would be to reject uh, premise two. You see, it's easy to conceal how extreme that position is if you're not playing fair. Because if you're not playing fair, you're, you, you might say, look, all I'm saying when I'm denying premise two is that you should promote goodness and that I can't explain why. 
But it's obvious that we should promote goodness, so it's not like there's a mysterious fact that I'm, I'm, I'm saying is, is brute and inexplicable. It's a kind of obvious fact that's brute and inexplicable. Um, but, you know, so all the point of all this harping on about what it counts as playing fair is to say, no, 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 no. The truth that's being claimed to be brute and primitive, if you deny premise two, is not the claim that goodness should be promoted. It's the claim that this primitive whatnot, P, should be promoted. And that, that's a highly non-trivial truth, a highly non-obvious truth that you're saying is um, brute and inexplicable. I should say also that even if um, a truth is obvious, it doesn't follow in the slightest that we shouldn't demand an explanation um, for it. I mean, it's obvious that water is clear and that the sun rises every morning, right? But we all are right to demand an explanation of these truths. I mean, it would be shocking if there was no explanation at all as to why the sun rises every morning. Um, so uh, so, so that, th this is to emphasize again that the demand here is a demand for explanation, not a demand for a reason to believe why P should be promoted. Um, okay, so that, that's, that's all I've got to say in defense of premise two. It's not a I haven't, haven't said that denying it is there's any logical inconsistency there, but it strikes me as rather extreme. Um, so let's turn to premise three, uh, which says that there is no explanation of why P should be promoted. Um, so to reject, if a non-naturalist wants to reject this, of course, you must try and offer some, at least some idea of what an explanation uh, uh, could be. And we should actually just start by being a little clear about what kind of explanation uh, is required here. It wouldn't do for her to say something like, well, we happen to like P, and that's why we should promote P. Because this would then ground normativity, you see, in our contingent preferences. And uh, the whole point of non-naturalism is to try and ground normativity uh, in something objective, in something out there in the world, right? Um, that's, that holds independently of our contingent preferences or desires or cultural histories or languages or forms of life or anything like that. The whole point of non-naturalism is to try and give normativity a more objective basis so that there are facts out there in the world such that any community of people, regardless of their language that they speak, um, the preferences that they have, their histories that they, um, that they come from, all of them ought to be conforming their behaviours to this uh, sui generis whatnot. Um, and so, as I'll just put it for short, the non-naturalist view is that it's an objective fact that P should be promoted. And so really what the non-naturalist has got to do is explain uh, that. Um, so let me just survey some possible explanations and show that they uh, don't work. Um, there's no way I can try to pretend to be exhaustive here, so this is just going to be suggestive. But I hope to sort of indicate something of the kind of problems that you run into, uh, when, or the non-naturalists would run into, uh, in trying to offer an explanation. So a first pass, explanation one uh, on the handout would be, the idea would be to try and say that P, the, the sui generis whatnot P, is correlated with something else that should be promoted. And that's why P should be promoted. Um, so for example, it's very natural that the non-naturalist would think that P is correlated uh, with a bunch of other things. She might think that various things in the world like pleasure, um, love, happiness, uh, desire, satisfaction, things like that, are things that have this sui generis property P. 
um, and so, so that those, all those things would be you know, correlated. Um, and so she might say then that P should be promoted because, claim one, pleasure should be promoted, and secondly, that pleasure is, let's suppose, uh, for the sake of argument, the only thing with this property P. Okay. I mean, but the pro problem with this, I think, is reasonably clear, is that it just by the non-naturalist's own lights, it gets the order of explanation exactly the wrong way round. I mean, um, I mean what, what, why is it the case that pleasure should be promoted? Well, the non-naturalist view was that it's supposed to be, that it, it should be promoted because it has this sui generis property P that should be promoted, not the other way around. Um, so claim one here is supposed to explain, is not, is not supposed to explain why P should promote it. It's rather supposed to be explained by the fact that P should be promoted. Um, another way to put, I think, what's basically the same point is just that if, if the non-naturalist tried this explanation one, the sui generis what not P would end up being completely explanatory idle. I mean, suppose that, um, suppose that one is true, that pleasure should be promoted, okay. Uh, and suppose that um, charitable donations promote pleasure, okay. So it follows and this explains why, then, we should, promote, we should donate to charity. Okay. So ple pleasure should be promoted. This explains why we should donate to charity. So what's the non-naturalist adding to this? Only that pleasure has this sui generis property P that should be promoted. But on explanation one, this should be promoted only because pleasure should be promoted. But this was already enough to explain why we should donate to charity. I mean, this diversion through P is just doing no work at all. Um, so I think this is, this is not a promising. Uh, line of thought for the non-naturalist. And uh, I mean, I th so the, the idea then uh, should be clear that then a whole bunch of possible explanations, you see, are going to be unavailable here. As soon as the non-naturalist tries to say that P should be promoted because P is correlated with something else that should be promoted, the problem, I think, is that it's just going to get everything uh, the, the wrong way around. Um, explanation, uh, second explanation, that I think when they're playing fair might be what's in the non-naturalist's mind, is to try and ex say that it's somehow in P's essence or nature uh, that it should be promoted. So, so the property P is essentially speaking that property that should be promoted. And then that would explain the idea is why. It would be an explanation of sorts as to why it should be promoted. It'd be sort of like sort of the explaining why Socrates is a member of Singleton Socrates by saying that, well, it's in the nature of Singleton Socrates to contain Socrates, um, uh, which is an explanation of sorts. I'm happy to grant that that's an explanation of sorts. Um, um, so this, I think, is a very interesting proposal. But to assess it, I think we need to be very, very careful about what this talk of essence and nature really amounts to. Um, I mean, if you. If, if you think that talk of essence just is talk of necessity, to, to say that P is essentially something that should be promoted, just is to say that P uh, necessarily should be promoted. Let's, let's just work under that understanding of what uh, essentialist talk amounts to. Then I think this actually isn't an explanation at all. I mean, uh, actually go back to the divine command theory. If you are wondering why God's commands are what we should obey rather than anyone else's commands. The mystery wouldn't be removed by saying, oh, it's a necessary truth that you should obey God's commands. I mean, because the question will just, almost the mystery is only deepened. You're like, well, why, why is it there's a necessary truth that I should obey this certain whatnot rather than uh, any of the other people in my life? 
Um, so that can't be the understanding of necessity of essence that, that this explanation could, could rely on. More promising, I think, as an explanation of why P should be promoted is the idea that we should understand talk of essence in the model of um, real definition. So this is a kind of conception of essentialist talk that Kip Fine uh, famously developed in the, in the mid-90s, um, where you know, just as you might define a word in other terms, so too um, you might offer a real definition of a certain entity or a property uh, in other things. His example, as I've, one I've already given, is that you know, the, the set singleton Socrates might be, the entity itself, not the word or anything, might be defined as the set containing Socrates as its sole uh, member. Um, so the idea here might be then that we might say that P is, by definition, that property that something has if it should be promoted. Right? Or to put it otherwise, for something to have P is, by definition, for it to be something we should promote. So this, I think, would explain why P should be promoted. Um, but the trouble is that the non-naturalist just can't say this by her own lights, because the whole point of non-naturalism is that P is a sui generis, irreducible property. Right? That is, it isn't a property that can be defined in other terms. Um, um, whereas on the, on the kind of explanation of why P is, should be promoted the, the under consideration, the view is that uh, P is not sui generis at all. It's rather something that's defined in terms of what we should promote. So I just think this explanation of why P should be promoted is just not something that's available for the non-naturalist to, to give. I mean, now the game is, I suppose, is to start thinking of alternative ways of reading this essentialist talk. And again, I can't be exhaustive here by any stretch of the imagination. But I mean, th I mean there are other understandings of essentialist talk. There's, there's a kind of scholastic uh, idea that certain things... Um, the scholastic idea back then was sort of that certain animals and plants have sort of inner natures hidden inside of them that are sort of efficient causes of their surface properties. Um, and actually, a whole branch of cognitive psychology these days is aimed at showing that this scholastic Aristotelian metaphysics is kind of implicit in the thinking of a lot of contemporary uh, human beings. And, but, a lot of this psychology is aimed to show that clearly there is no such inner essence uh, inside of us that's an efficient cause of, of, um, of our surface properties. But nonetheless, uh, apparently, according to psychologists, this is something we implicitly uh, believe. So maybe a non-naturalist could say that the property P has this internal nature, this scholastic sort of internal nature that is somehow a kind of hidden, uh, efficient cause of the fact that it should be promoted. Um, um, that, I think, is an explanation that's consistent with non-naturalism. It's consistent with thinking that P is a sui generis property, that it has some mysterious scholastic inner nature. Uh, my only worry about this is it's a sort of worrying return to scholasticism. Uh, I mean, you, you know, think of the example of water again. I mean, if we ask someone what properties of water, of H2O, explain why water is clear and colorless. Uh, there's a perfectly good explanation in terms of the electrostatic forces between molecules and so forth. Um, whereas the scholastic metaphysical uh, explanation would just say that H2O has an inner nature um, that causes it to 
be clear and colourless. And I think, you know, that's, that sort of approach to theorising has rightly been rejected, and I think we should continue to reject it um, here. But, I, but that's, not, that's not anything definitive. It's an, that's an option. That would be an option. Um, let me, I've been going for 45 minutes. Five, five more minutes? Is that, is that okay? So let me just outline a, a couple of uh, other explanations which I think sort of fall into a very similar category. Um, one might say that promoting P is a constitutive aim of action. So that is that a bodily movement, when we try to distinguish bodily movements from genuine actions, you might say that something counts, a bodily movement counts as an action only if it is aimed at promoting P. Um, and if, if that was right, you might say, well, you might explain why actions should promote P. After all, only those actions would fulfill their aim. Right? Um, but I think I have two objections to, to this kind of explanation. First, I very much doubt that promoting P is a constitutive aim of action. Um, just speaking personally, I don't think I've ever aimed at promoting P. <laughs> Um, but I think I've been acting. Uh, um, and don't say, remember, don't say, oh, but you have been aim, aiming at promoting goodness, and goodness is P, so you have been aiming at promoting goodness, because that wouldn't be playing fair. It's going back to the first half of, of the talk. So when we're focusing on the idea of whether it's a constitutive aim of action, that it, sorry, that it promotes P, uh, that, I think, is pretty, and I'd be interested in hearing a reason to believe it. Uh, but the second uh, objection to this kind of explanation is that even if promoting P was a constitutive aim of action, I don't think it would give the non-naturalists what they need. Um, just imagine a community like ours, which is just like us, speaks like us, uh, except that their bodily movements um, aren't aimed at promoting P, they're aimed at promoting redness. Okay. So given the proposal on the table that Promoting P is a constitutive aim of action. It follows that they're not acting. Fine, they're schmacting. Okay. Now, the non-naturalist wants to say that these people are somehow going wrong. Right? They're not sort of doing as they, as they ought. Right? They should be promoting P instead. But the current proposal doesn't explain that at all. Right? All it explains is that these people don't count as acting. It doesn't explain why one should act rather than schmacked. This is, this is a point, ironically, that was made by David Enoch, um, <laughs> a prime example uh, of a non-naturalist. Um, and so what I'm saying now is fr very friendly to David Enoch, saying that paper was great, but it shows that a certain style of explanation of why uh, a primitive whatnot uh, should be promoted uh, isn't going to be successful. Um, um, a very similar point, I think, could be made against explanation four. So this is the idea that we say that P should be promoted because this follows in some way from the meaning of should. Because you might think, look, part of what it means to say that one should do an action A is that Aing uh, promotes P. Okay. I mean, again, I think that's a sort of quite an implausible suggestion about what the meaning of should consist in. But again, I think it just doesn't give the non-naturalist um, what she needs. Because again, we can imagine a community that uses a word uh, schmud um, instead of our word should. And so that, uh, in their language, um, by definition, one schmud fi, if, if and only if fying promotes uh, redness, say. Okay. 
And it follows that in their language, redness should be promoted. And so they go and tell each other, you know, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. And they'll organize their behavior then around, uh, you know, painting the town red. Um, uh, now, the non-naturalist wants to say that these people are in some sense getting things wrong, that their, their lives ought, <laughs> in some objective sense, to be organized around this sui generis property P, not the property of redness. Uh, but on the current proposal, um, the current proposal has no way of saying how this community is getting anything wrong, right? There's facts about P and facts about what we should do that we talk about and that we organize our lives about around. There are also facts about what's red and facts about what one should do that they organize their lives around. Um, but on this view, there's nothing to explain why any further fact about the sense in which one community might be getting things any more sort of right or correct or reflecting the objective normative truths uh, than the other. Um, you know, of course, we can say that they're not doing as they should. They can say we're not doing as we should. Um, but there's no further fact on this view on which language is, as it were, better or reflecting normative reality uh, any better. Um, so those, both those explanations, three and four, you see, I think, are, are explanations of a sort, but they're not explaining why P is something to be promoted in the objective sense that the non-naturalist wanted to uh, capture. Um, so that's the objection, the externalist construal of this problem of normativity. Um, uh, and I hope it's clear then that it, it differs quite markedly from the internalist construal. Because remember, as I've been talking, I've been making no mention of normative judgments or whether they bear any kind of necessary connection to states of motivation or anything like that. I've just been talking about the metaphysical properties themselves and whether they have uh, any normative upshot. Um, for my money, I think that the only refuge really, uh, unless some reading of essence can be articulated in which the kind of essentialist explanation in explanation two can be made out, I think the refuge is that the non-naturalist has to deny premise two and say that it's just simply a brute, we should, we should be promoting P even though uh, there's nothing about P uh, that makes it special. And as I said, I don't have any definitive ex uh, objection to that. But the, um, the, the challenge for the external, extern to making the externalist construal um, compelling, I think, is just to expose that position for the radical uh, position uh, that it is by, by, paying, by playing fair. So I'll stop there. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>